much horror business Driving late at night Psycho 78 12 o'clock Don't be late I said Greetings and salutations. My name is Justin Lore. And I'm Liam O'Donnell. And you are listening to episode 55 of Horror Business. Horror Business. Now today... We are recording in the in the depths of February, which, as we know, is Black History Month. Black History Month. It's also Women in Horror Month. Sure is. So we are doing a combination of both those things. We are taking a look at two movies that feature black women. We are going to be doing 1974's... Is black exploitation? Yeah, yeah. 1974's black exploitation classic Sugar Hill. Let's call it black exploitation horror. Black exploitation horror. Of which... Uh, of which I will say, whatever we have to say about Sugar Hill uh, in the future, Sugar <laughs> Hill still is a better example. Um, as we talked about, we talked about we we you know this is partly inspired by uh, horror noir, which we saw and we talked about. It. Did we talk about it on an episode yet? You guys talked about it on Cinepunks. We haven't talked about it. Oh, okay. Yet. Me and Justin went and saw horror noir. It was great. We'll talk about it more in a little bit here. But uh, you know they 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 highlighted some black exploitation horror. You know and. Some of the things in that category are amazing. I think Blackula and Scream Blackula Scream are both awesome films. Yes. But then you get something like Blackenstein. Horrible movie. It's unwatchable trash. I, so one time, you know, I used to write a lot more for friends. Fr- friends of the show, synapse.cl. We used to talk about them a lot more. Sorry, Ed. We don't hype you as much as we used to. <laughs> My bad. Uh, but I used to write for them a lot. And I also organized, you know... Uh, Cinepunk's member, Brendan Foley, who does the Black Sun Dispatches podcast, which mm-hmm. we, re- we recommend. Yes, highly. Highly. He organizes something that I helped create over there, which is the Two Cents column. You pick a movie for that week, and everyone gives just a short blurb about what they think about the movie. You know, just gets a bunch of voices in the room, variety of conversations. Yes. So the one of the Halloweens, I picked all the movies for that Halloween, and I was like, you know, we haven't done any black horror movies. I should make sure we do a black horror movie for... But I picked Sight Unseen, Blackenstein. Mm. Again, only because I had seen Blackula and I had seen Scream Blackula Scream and I had seen a few other things. And I thought about picking Sugar Hill, which, you know, we have issues with. We're going to get into it. But um, it's certainly a watchable film. Sugar Hill, I haven't even seen Blackenstein. Uh-huh. But I'm going to go ahead and say that Sugar Hill is, and this is putting it modestly, leaps and bounds ahead of. You've seen clips from Blackenstein, yes, which I is have. enough to know that no one on Blackenstein knew what a light was. Basically, no. <laughs> how to light a scene. Okay, we're getting off track. Point is, we watched Sugar Hill, and then what was the other thing we were, we're doing? We're doing 1994's Southern Gothic coming of age film, Eve's Bayou. Now, um, Eve's Bayou, for some of you, might not exactly fall into the category of horror, but before you tweet at us or whatever, um, we just want to make it clear that uh, we don't care. That you don't, that you feel that way. I'm sorry, 1997. 97. Yes, I yes. thought it was a little bit later. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it's it, it, it's. I, I actually okay. I would actually agree with someone that it's not uh, obviously a horror film for what we've come to understand as horror movies. No. However, it is broadly by being a gothic film that involves, uh, in some sense, the supernatural as well as the horror of what it is to uh, be a person of color in America, mm-hmm. I think that it qualifies as a horror film. And if you don't enjoy that, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, we've covered a lot of weird stuff on here, and we'll cover 
very traditional shit and more weird stuff into the future because that's just what we want to do. Yeah, this is definitely horror, Jason, and it's a little off the it's a little off the beaten path. Not in that this is some like hidden gem, because this is a very well received movie. You know, it's a very widely known movie. Sure, but in the I would say in the horror genre, it's not what you traditionally would think of as a horror film. It has some horrific elements. Well, and I will say this: this is a movie that, on one hand, I very much. Uh, appreciate and we'll get more into that but it is a classic um it's a classic story of an off the beaten path movie going through hollywood in that the direct writer director of the film claims that most of what she wanted the film to be is like not there okay even as it's critically acclaimed and people love it she was she felt very constricted in the editing process by the studio in fact apparently there's a whole other plot thread that was excised completely, including a character to be a part of that thread from the movie. Hmm. Which, um, I don't know. We'll talk about it, w- yeah. w- whether we notice that or not. But it is interesting because the few times that, you know, this is a movie written and directed by a black woman, like that's a huge deal. But how often those things happen and it was a tale of someone feeling restricted or judged or, you know. Uh, anyway, before we get into all that. Before we get into the meat and potatoes. And the gravy of this episode, mm, we should let you know that this episode is brought to you by you, our Patreon subscribers. Thank you. Not everyone realizes we have a Patreon. I think I need to bring it up on Cinepunks more because I, you bring it up here every week, but not yeah. everyone does. But if for some reason you skip this part every time and this one time you happen to hear it, hey, yo. What up? Go check out our Patreon. Do it. It's greatly appreciated. Yep. You don't have to give anything, but we appreciate it so much when you do. It means the world to us. I want to shout out. I think we already recently shouted out most of the the people. We're going to do a... I need to go through see if we have any new people. I know I just saw today, though, a uh, friend of the network, Kaylin Fulmer, just became a supporter. What up, Kaylin? How are you? Uh, you're cool, and thank you for supporting us on Patreon. Greatly appreciated. Uh, yeah, so uh, go check it out. There's a few things available to you as sort of thank yous for doing that. But really, um, the the biggest thing is just knowing that we can only do this because you do that. Um, I I know for a fact that we are going to have something on there soon. It's going to happen. <laughs> I appreciate that. Jesus. All right. This episode is also brought to you by the premier screen printing company of the Lehigh Valley area. That's Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. Now, Liam, if I said to you... Oh, God. Okay, whatever, ha- it, whatever it is, I don't like it. I have an idea... For a Dukes of Hazard tribute, but okay. all the all the characters yeah. are Great Danes, and it's called Marmadukes of Hazard. And I want to get a T-shirt made for Marmadukes of Hazard. Where would you send me? To hell <laughs> for Marmadukes of Hazard. <laughs> to to literally uh, to literally the fifth or sixth circle. That's what I would do. I think you like briefly disrupted our whole. Like everything crackled, lost the whole thing. Um, if you have a bad idea, much like Justin's, or a good idea, unlike anything Justin's ever had, you need to go to Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations, which you can find on the internet at xlvacx.com. At this point, if Justin wasn't losing his his shit, he would let you know that Chris Reject is not straight. Not edge. straight. He's not straight edge. However, LVAC is professional. They are creative. They are personable and they are timely. 
Um, if you've ever ordered a shirt from Cinepunks or Rough Cut Tees or uh, let's say any number of bands from Slingshot Dakota to the Here's Collective to Iron Sheik, those were all, for the most part... Hordes of professional wrestlers get their stuff. Oh, yeah, Atomic yeah, yeah. Elbow, Puff, yeah. uh, Ultramantis Black. A lot of people. A lot of people utilize Chris Reject's services. And they're very, like Liam said, they'll help you with the design. So when you go there to get your Marmadukes of Hazard shirt, they'll say, maybe don't include the Confederate flag. Maybe just keep that completely out of there. They'll do that for you. I really was picturing Marmaduke, instead of being red, he is just Confederate flag co- colored. And that's his connection to the Dukes of Hazard. Don't defile that, Marmaduke like that, that. That and the fact that he's jumping his doghouse over yeah. something. With a guy behind him going, I just realized the other day there's a live action Marmaduke movie, and I still I cannot no. fucking comprehend that. So that's why Marmaduke's stuck in my mind. I need us not to talk about that. Yeah. So www.xlvacx.com for more information on their services, anything they can do. They can do lots of stuff shirts, capes, fucking. Thongs, uh, cod pieces, anything you need, they'll print on it. Ayo, let Chris Reject take care of you. Yeah, let him coddle you in his warm embrace. He used to be a masseuse, so he knows what he's doing. I thought I was getting creepy, and then you made it creepier. This is weird. It's my M.O. It's my M.O. So now comes the part in the show where I ask the fucking burning question that exists in my heart and my soul. Every goddamn waking minute I'm on this fucking planet. Liam, have you done anything hard-related recently? You know, not a whole lot. Probably done more than me. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a couple things I want to talk about. Uh, one is, um, this is, I, I think this would be more under horror adjacent, but elements of it kind of fit into horror. It's probably more of a sci-fi thing. But, you know, whatever. I'm not here to fight over genres. Uh, I watched that show, Russian Doll. Have you watched this? No, but I keep hearing a lot about it. So it's uh, um, Natasha Lyonne, mm-hmm. who uh, folks might know from Orange is the New Black or The Slums of Beverly Hills or a bunch of other things. Can Hardly Wait, I think she was in. Maybe, yeah, 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 yeah that sounds right. Uh, I love her. I think she's great. Yeah. She is the star of this, and uh, she is, I think she may have written part of it, or she certainly is an executive producer on it. And, uh, you know, it's it's like, a, it's somewhat similar. Oh, it relates to... I need to keep remember this segue that it relates to the next thing I'm going to talk about, but it is a Groundhog Day esque scenario. I know where you're going with this, uh, but much like the next thing I'm going to talk about, it uh, changes that formula. In this case, um, she uh, every time she dies, she wakes up in this exact spot, but it's not. She hasn't been asleep. It's just the moment it becomes her birthday. There's a birthday party, and mm. it's like she's looking in the bathroom mirror, and it's her birthday. Um, and as it goes forward, uh, it's less like a fun romp sort of thing and more like a uh, occasional really funny jokes in the midst of a what the fuck is happening to me. So it's well, like Tom Cruise's similar movie, Edge of Tomorrow. It is not adventuresome. She plays a character who is a video game designer who is very much uh, uh, a bit of a, a hater of humanity and a bit of a, a negative sort of person mm. uh, who isn't sure why she's even alive in the first place. Um, and so this experience at first is just weird, but then as it goes forward, aspects of it start to affect her and she starts to notice things around her and um, it becomes about her past and 
I don't want to ruin it for anybody. There's some big old surprises. Interesting. There's some real scary moments. And uh, he, by the end, made me cry a little bit. Interesting. So I think a lot of it is sort of a, not a direct metaphor, but it's influenced by her experience of addiction. And I think that is informing a bit of what's going on here, mm. um, which is a theme. And another thing I'm going to talk about. Wow. Everything is connected. So anyways, it's a fun it's not it's not fun fun. It is a well worth it watch on Netflix. It's I think maybe eight episodes. Eight or ten episodes, I'm not sure. But uh I highly recommend it, especially if you like things that are weird but also charming, um, that are kind of like puzzles. Uh basically if you cool. like me, because I'm weird, charming, and puzzling. I also watched Happy Death Day. Yes. Uh, in anticipation of Happy Death Day 2 coming out. Um, I, I've heard mixed things. A bunch of people lately have been saying it's not good. But a few critics who saw it a little bit ago who I like were saying it was, in fact, good. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know what to think. But I did know that I hadn't seen the first one. So I should at least see the first one. And I remember when the first one came out, it got mixed reviews. Some people loved it. Some people hated it. Um, I'm going to say I liked it. I thought it was a lot of fun. I get why some people maybe were a little annoyed by aspects of it, but it didn't annoy me at all. I had fun with it. And I think it's just another example uh, of a woman giving a star performance in a horror film and not getting that much respect. Jessica Roth is not, I think a household name yet, but I think this performance uh, should really be taken seriously. It's, it's not an easy one to do. There's some layers there. Again, I'm not saying like, and she should have gotten an Oscar, but I think it's something that people should be talking about. Like, oh, clearly she knows what she's doing and she can really, you know, make a character sort of feel real. You Absolutely. Know? I don't know if every other character in the movie is that great, but she, her performance is awesome. No, I felt, <clears throat> there was one thing I didn't like about that movie. It said I felt that everyone except for her was a super dull character, an archetype, like really flat, not dynamic at all. The only thing about that that bums me is I agree with you, and I feel like that's also true of the person who ends up being her love interest. Yes. Which I won't say who that is, but you could probably figure it out. Um, if it was just her and him that were interesting and the rest were caricatures, the movie would be better. Absolutely. I don't think, I don't think, you know, the various shitty roommates or the, you know, the, you know, I guess they're sorority sisters teacher like all these other people that are sort of there just to be someone she bounces yeah. off of they can all be bullshit char- not real characters that's fine but this particular person is in the movie a lot with her and he is also flat and yes. that doesn't work if he was interesting and she was interesting i think the movie would go from you know it was fun it was a good time i enjoyed it whatever to maybe something a little more engaging you know mm-hmm. so anyways i liked it it's similar to russian doll in that it's the dying and waking back up but uh russian doll comes at it from a very different angle um and this one is a little more of a of a slasher film going on i did like the aspect of it it's affecting her that she's not just it's not like groundhog day where it's like i can do whatever i want oh yeah no it's like accumulating she's starting to like wake up with like broken ribs and shit yeah yeah, yeah. i like that aspect of it i gave it stakes yes uh and then another thing i watched unfortunately these none of these are at the theater i haven't had time to go to theater i'm sorry y'all um i watched a little movie called complex okay by gasper no now justin how do you feel about gasper no what else has he done? Uh, you might know him from such films as I Stand Alone. 
Uh, ooh, Enter the Void. Irreversible. Love. I know about none of these things. I thought you might have known Irre- Irreversible was sort of the movie that a lot of people I mean, I know see. what it is. I know what... That's the. That's another um, like French extremity film, right? Yeah, he, he, he kind of broke into that sort of world with I Stand Alone, which is... Uh, um, I don't know how to describe it, actually. I think my sister, of all people, has seen Irreversible. Don't ask me why I think that. No, Irreversible was huge. It did really well at Cannes, and I think he got award knowledge for it. Uh, I haven't watched it. Uh, it's actually, I think, the only one of his movies. No, I haven't finished Love. I started Love and I haven't finished it yet. But it's the only one of his movies I haven't even tried to watch because it involves, from what I understand, a very brutal rape. Irreversible? Yeah. Yes. And so I... And people know, I've talked about it on this show, I've talked about it on Cinepunks. I'm not necessarily like, uh, you can never have rape in a film. Uh, for example, I thought that movie Revenge was very good. And that involved... Uh, a rape revenge plot. Uh, I famously am a defender of Last House on the Left and uh, a few other things. But there are so many examples of it going poorly. And I know so many people who felt like this particular example was not what a lot of people worry about, which is like over-sexualization, just that it was like very long and very brutal. And I know for Josh, it's the only one of... This is why I bring it up, because Josh knows who Gaspar Noe is, because he hates him. It's the only one of his movies he's ever seen is Irreversible. This man has evoked the wrath of the like the <laughs> nicest man in the world? Well, because the only movie he's seen is this Irreversible movie. He saw it in the theater. He didn't know what it was, and it upset him so much that now he hates Gaspar Noe. Now, meanwhile, it's the only one I haven't seen. I kind of like Gaspar Noe. Or I, <laughs> I don't know if I would go so far as to say I like him, but I appreciate the movies I've seen, what he's doing in them. Yeah. So I just watched Complex's latest movie. It's definitely... <clears throat> Also horror adjacent, but to me, it's more of a horror movie. It's very horrifying. Uh, And it's even more horrifying after I watched it, I found out it's based on a real thing. So the movie starts off as this like, uh, very weirdly, it starts off with interviews. And it's almost too gimmicky because it's a shot of a TV where it's interviews with the different dancers. It's like their tryout interviews to be in the show that they're going to be in. But the TV on one side is, is has books, and I, I didn't couldn't read all the books, but they looked like mostly like philosophy books. And on the other side, it has VHS, mm. and all the VHS are very well known European, mostly European horror movies. And so the message of, "Hey, I'm Gaspar Noe. You might know me from a bunch of other movies you either loved or hated, because everyone either loves or hates me." Yeah. Let me set a context for you. French philosophy, fucked up horror. You know where this movie's going? And then basically uh, uh, in real life, a dance group took a bunch of acid. Uh, I think in the real story, they did it on purpose. In this movie, it's someone fucks with them. Okay. Um, And then shit goes awry because if you have, you know, 50 or so people who don't know they're going to be on acid on a ton of acid things can go wrong and so uh the movie <coughs> you know Gaspar no style is very um it's the closeness and intimacy of a handheld camera when it's clearly not a handheld camera it's clearly okay. a camera on a steady cam or on a dolly or above people like it's that it, it and shot in a very cinema way 
but then it's way close and it's following people. Like there are long parts of this movie that are just one shot of them dancing and then partying and going around or whatever. And then it cuts to individual conversations and you start to see the good parts and the bad parts of who these people are and things just start to escalate and escalate until they all realize they're drugged and then things get super fucked up, like out of control fucked up. And from what I understand... The movie's only this only scenario is based off the real life scenario, because no one, I don't know that how much they know what happened to these in these real life with the dancers. The dancers just were discovered the next day, and some of them were in real bad condition, and that's sort of what happens in this movie. So, um, it's bad. It's real t- rough. It's not rapey per se, but it's not. There are a few scenarios that are not far from that. Um, I think it would be more upsetting because my man doesn't care about. Uh, your orientation watching the movie uh, spatially. Yes. So at certain points, the camera is upside down and it's making you very dizzy. Uh, at other points, the lights are doing weird things. Like I could see it up- setting off someone's epilepsy. Like there's Jesus. a lot of following people as they have absolute insane free. Like some of the acting in the movie is like insane scene chewing. Is that person actually high? Maybe because. <laughs> It's just out of control. So it's like the subway scene in Possession. It's beyond. It's it's not as good as that because she's amazing in that yes. scene. But it is beyond that and that it's a lot of people going through all kinds of different things. Now, I'm sure it's over the top because it's Gaspar Noe and that's his style, you know? Uh, but as an edgeman, I assume every acid trip is like that, that this is just all acid people are just murdering each other. Acid people. All acid people are just murdering each other and fucking and locking kids in closets and all kinds of stuff. So all that to say, if you like movies that are artful and upsetting at the same time, you might like this Gaspar Noe movie. Especially if you already know you like Gaspar Noe, you might like this Gaspar Noe movie. But um, for me... I don't know. Uh, I definitely watched it and then told Josh I watched it, and then Josh decided we're going to do a Cinepunks episode on Gaspar No. So if this is something you want to hear me and Josh talk about, especially knowing that Josh hates this dude, um, check out the next episode of Cinepunks, I guess. I don't know what I'm going to say about it because it was very visually stunning, but the whole oh, movie is so upsetting. You mean Climax is the name of the movie. What did I call it? Complex? Complex. My bad. I'm sorry, y'all. Climax. Climax makes a lot more sense. The movie definitely climaxes. Mm. I mean, it basically all, you know, it starts off and then uh, everything makes sense. And then there's a moment when things are starting to not make sense. And at that moment, they show you the credits. And of course, it being Gaspar No, the credits are like each individual name done in this crazy logo. And then like that could be the end of the movie. But that's actually when things have another hour of insanity. Hmm. Anyway. Climax. Check it out if you like that sort of weird stuff. But that's it. That's all the harsh stuff I've done. How about you, Justin? Uh, aside from Har Noir, um, I haven't watched any real movies. I guess we should talk about Har Noir, but I guess you can talk about it because if you haven't talked about it, yeah. you don't have any I mean, the only thing I can say that I... Um, I did that was like horror adjacent, I guess, is I finally finished Dr. Sleep, the book. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, I finished, real quick, I finished um, We Sold Our Souls. Okay. 
This is also very, I didn't realize how much of a horror book that was. I, I remember talking about it before and saying it was kind of horror. And now that I finished like the book, full blown it is a horror book. Yeah. It is intense. Uh, it ends very well, but it's very intense. The only thing I'll say about Dr. Sleep is that I'm super excited Mike Flanagan's doing it. But I said this on Twitter today. It made me really sad um, just how badly Kubrick missed the mark, hmm. purposefully or otherwise, when it came to the characterization of Jack Torrance and his version of The Shining. Just a huge bummer. Um, it's a great book. I can't wait to see what Mike Flanagan does with it. Um, it's a lot rougher than I realized it was going to be. Okay. Uh, it, I mean, even for like Stephen King, who's no stranger to like terrible shit happening to children, it's a uh, it's a little much at times. But um, the only horror movie I've watched has been a film that Liam and I both saw. That is, I guess, technically the inspiration for this episode. A little film called Hard Noir. We made the journey to the big city, which mm-hmm. in this case is New York City, uh, last week to see this movie. And I like to call New York the other apple. The other apple. What's the other other apple? Allentown. <laughs> uh, no, I really liked it. I mean, I can't really say much that you guys didn't say on, on Cinepunks. Um, it was definitely my favorite theatrical experience. I felt like I was, I've often said that going to the movies is like the closest thing for me to going to church. And this was even more like a religious service for me. Uh, there was just this empathy amongst the crowd. Yeah, totally. Like everyone was just boom in in the groove, at, and it was just it was just it was just fun. I've never had an experience like I mean I I've had similar experiences theatrically like that before, but this was the the, the best one so far. It was just like everyone was just there to have a good time, and it, I don't know. It was just it was just a really fun experience. Um. And the one thing that stands out a lot is that this movie really, it kind of took the task, you know, and no disrespect to Tony Todd, it took Candyman the task, mm-hmm. which is a, something that a lot of movies don't do. A lot of, when they talk about it, they don't do. Like, it's often lauded as this landmark in uh, black horror, which it definitely is, but it's also a very problematic film, and I'm glad that this movie sort of took a took a, took a long, hard look at that. I remember when I watched the sequel, thinking the sequel actually added complexity to the character. Um, and I'm glad that they mentioned that in yes. the movie that like the sequel, the second one doesn't get that much respect. I mean, from what I understand, the third one is trash, but um, the second one doesn't get that much respect. And, and I get it. It's not as scary. It has some problems of its own as a movie. But as far as doing good for the Candyman character, it is way more uh, consistent and sympathetic. And it really like works. It really makes that character more what I think it's meant to be. Yeah, know? for those of not in, not in the know, instead of it just being a black guy lusting after a white woman, you know, as some sort of like weird forbidden fruit, it actually uh, adds like a human element to it. Like it, it, there's like there's like a love there. Well, I noticed that as Tony Todd is talking about the character in in Horror Noir, he can't help but talk about the character as if part two is part of part one. Yes, so exactly. He's describing his experience of part one, and I'm. I'm as someone who's watched the movie thinking, no, you're thinking about part two, buddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. that happens in part two. That doesn't happen in part one. Yes. In part one, you just go after this lady, and it's not a sweet love. You know what I mean? Like It's an the, obsession, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, and don't get me wrong. I I think we talked about this at the screening, and I want I, I mentioned a little bit on Cinepunks. I think, it, I think that aspect of him being obsessed with her is problematic. But 
the idea that he's a metaphor who is haunting the black community in some ways works a little bit because that's often how the legacy of slavery works, right? That like, even though, even when I was a kid, which was, you know, way too long ago, you know, <laughs> let's say 35 years ago. There you go. White people were still saying like, oh, slavery was so long ago, just get over it. And like Candyman in that first film is like a metaphor for like, we're still haunted by what you did to us. Like yeah, yeah, we're yeah. still dealing with that pain. It doesn't just go away. Now I think on a narrative level, the shit still doesn't work. He should be in the white neighborhood. That's the only thing. Yeah, that yeah. Actually, he's makes not. Sense. If he's there, if he's but, there to remind someone, he's not going to be fucking Cabrini Green. But I feel like metaphorically, it works in when he's just a stand-in for that darkness. The problem is that doesn't work with the white lady. You, know I mean? like, yeah, 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 you yeah. still have that trope that doesn't really work that well in the movie. Again, I love Candyman. Like, this is not, and and, and whatever. We, like you said, we talked about it on Cinepunks. I, I feel like, for those of you who haven't listened to the Cinepunks episode, the only thing I want us to say is like, um, A, it's a for real movie about horror movies. Like, I, I want, <clears throat> if you're somebody who listens to the show because you're a true true horror hound and you're like I don't know a movie about black horror doesn't sound that interesting like this is an important part of horror history yes. it's not just about the experience of black people though for me that would be enough mm-hmm. but it's about that and about the history of horror films and so like if you don't know about this stuff you don't really know about horror you know what I mean like you, you're missing out the one uh, the one thing uh, that I guess it explored thematically um, that I, I really appreciate it and I yeah. never really thought of and it's something that's sort of a pet peeve of mine is they broke down the black guy dies first trope. Right. Not only did they break it down, they got rid of it because it's like, it's one of those things how people are like, oh, it's like the black guy dies first. You're like, well, what movie does that black guy die first? And they're like, well, you know, the the movie. Like, it's, it's such a common trope where you know, you'll see in a movie where like a something spooky happens and a black character's like, I know this movie, I'm getting out of here. And it's like, yeah, but what, mov- what movie is that? Like, what movie are you talking about? I mean, I feel like it has happened. I'm sure it has, but not nearly on the no, level. No, not nearly of that. And it ignores the fact that like some of the best characters, I mean, uh, you know, Yafik Kodo, you know, makes it really far in Alien. You know, David, second to last man standing. Yeah, like even Nalls in the fucking thing is like the third to last guy to die. Yeah, I just think, I just think, um, you're right that it's something that's been exaggerated Mm -hmm. to a certain extent. What they, I mean, and then there's, I mean, let's not forget fucking Ben in the Living Dead. Yeah. Um, the one thing they did examine though is a trope that I never thought about in this sense of this is an actual problem is. We need the black guy to be afraid of the spooky monster to show the viewer how scary it is. Yeah, it, it's it's literally like we want you to know this is tough, and we know you're afraid of black men. So yeah. we need a black man to be afraid. Exactly. Um, and then it also shows like the need the, the, the trope of like the, the the black character needlessly sacrificing himself so the white character can live. Sure. Which didn't even dawn on me. Even I, even just the helpful friend idea when what's what's her name from the craft is like. How many okay? different ways can I say? Are you, are you okay? okay? Yeah. Are you okay? Yeah. Are you, are you okay? It's yeah. All that stuff. I mean, so big shout out to uh, former guest, friend of the show, Ashley Blackwell. She did uh, uh, so much amazing work on this. This is basically her baby. It's incredible. Uh, it with was some help, of course, from Phil Nobile, who we love, uh, and then 
not that I think Tanarive do uh, listens to the show, but she's amazing. She was at the Q and A. She had a lot of insights in the movie and at the Q and A. And I'm just continually impressed by her. So yeah, I think we both we so we were supposed to start our Harbus's book club recently with that um, men, women, and chainsaws. Book. Yes, and we both have it, and I don't know that either one of us has started reading it. It's sitting on my bookshelf <laughs> as we speak. But I think after that, we should do that hard noir book. Absolutely. Because I think, just so you all know, yes, you should get Shudder and watch hard noir. But um, if you've done that, I would also recommend her book because I haven't read it yet. But, the, uh, you know, having read her work in other places and talked to people who have read the book, the book is way more than the movie. The movie is just like the most entertaining wor- version of what she actually does in the book, which is much deeper and more academic and whatever. Yeah. So, um, and also I will say too, um, the, if you're in the, you know, I know we have some listeners in the Austin area. If you're in the Austin area, head over to Vulcan video. They have a whole section of movies that were featured in the uh, documentary. Yes. Including that very first movie. They found like an archival, uh, there's like, you know, they have those archival services that will burn you. It's not like a commercial DVD, but they'll burn you yeah, something yeah, yeah, that's yeah. in there. They had that son of whatever movie. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like the very first official black made horror movie, basically, mm. is from the 40s. Um, and so if you're in the Austin area, you can actually go get a copy of that at Vulcan Video and watch it. So big up to the, you know, uh, Rocky Juarez and uh, Jacob Knight and some of the other people we know at Vulcan. So. Anyways, uh, yeah, Hard Noir was great. I had a lot of fun with you, man. I'm glad we went. It was a yeah. good time. Got to meet some cool people. Shout so. out to my new friend, Tasha, who we chatted with for a little bit there. That was awesome. Uh, I'm trying to think of anything else. I got nothing. All right, that's fine. Hey, let's, uh, let's take a oh, break. Should we just real quick? Yeah. Or should we save it for the end, the, the, the screening? We'll say it now. We'll say it again at the end. Um, uh, if you're looking for something to do that's horror adjacent, we have an event. March 18th at the Rotunda in Philadelphia. Did you enjoy our last episode where Mr. Al White talked about things? Would you like to hear him talk about more things? Well, guess what? We're going to be hosting a screening of Starfish with a Q&A afterwards hosted by yours truly. Justin's going to get up there with Al. They're going to chat. It's going to be cool. Justin's going to make some fun, awkward jokes. <laughs> Al's going to be British and self-infacing. And it's going to be a good time. Come get weird and sad with us. It's ten dollars which is literally as cheap as we could humanly go uh it's at the rotunda so it's also a very punk diy venue um but it's a big room i promise it will be as good as we can make it uh and it's gonna be cool i hope we're gonna have some posters there um i hope that uh we'll have some cinepunk stuff and harvest and stuff there for you as like just giveaways and uh i hope that you know that we love you so yeah come on out um, if you're anywhere in the Philadelphia area, take a drive. Check it out. March 18th. Um, we would we would like to see you and give you a high five. Come say what's up. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about 1974's Blaxploitation Horror Masterpiece, Sugar Hill. Blood is red. Voodoo is blue. Sugar is sweet. Revenge is sweeter. I'm passing seconds. Meet Sugar Hill. No, please. Not a place. 
but a brand new face. My friends call me Sugar. The foxiest. Looking for anything special? Sexiest. Deadliest chicken town. The mob took Sugar's man away. And now she's gonna make them pay. I want them dead. With a voodoo priestess called Mama Matrace. I know what you can do. The power you possess. How strong is your hate? And Baron Samdi, too. My particular special. A drink that I'm famous for. The zombie. This is my domain. A kingdom of the dead. And an army of undead behind her. Each death has had something to do with voodoo ritual. There's nothing that sugar can't do. Use it. The mob has never seen anything like Sugar Hill and her zombie hitmen. And we are back to talk about 1974's Sugar Hill. When her boyfriend is murdered by gangsters, Sugar Hill decides not to get mad, but bad. She entreats voodoo queen Mama Matrici to call on Baron Samudi, Lord of the Dead, for help with gruesome revenge. In exchange for Sugar's soul, the Dark Master raises up a zombie army to do her bidding. The bad guys who think they got away clean are about to find they are dead wrong. Dead wrong. Dead wrong. That's a pretty good summation of that movie. Um, did you think Sugar Hill was a neighborhood? Because I thought it was a neighborhood. What do you mean? Uh, before I saw the movie, I didn't read the thing. I thought Sugar Hill was a neighborhood. Oh, and you thought it was about the name came from a neighborhood, not from like a... Right. And then it starts and I'm like, oh, her name is Sugar... Oh, okay. I just thought it was set in a place called Sugar Hill, but... Oh, know. no, yeah. yeah I, I, could, I That's what I, I assumed. Yeah. But no, that's not true. Not at all. It's set in set in Orleans. Was it set in Orleans? Set in Orleans. See, I'm assuming it was because there's like swamps and shit. Do they never say Orleans? I don't know. Look, look, the the uh, expired slaves are in a swamp. It's Cajun, so we'll go ahead and say it's Orleans. It's gotta be right. They're at least in in Louisiana. They're at least in the Mississippi Delta. Let's leave it at that. It's got to be Louisiana. No, 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 no. It's Louisiana. Okay. You're, they're not doing this kind of voodoo in Mississippi in the same way. You think? I don't know. I mean... There's something about it that felt very Louisiana to me. I could be wrong. Well, here's the thing, though. I put to you, did it feel Louisiana because it was French? Because it could just... Because Haitian and Cajun are two different... Things. Oh, that's true. See, see. Oh, yeah. So I just okay. It's well, definitely in the south because there's like alligators and shit. Right. So, man. I mean, to be fair, all of it's confusing because all the gangsters seem Italian, and I'm like, y'all are lost. Yeah. How did you get to this? Are place? they? They're, they're like vaguely Italian. But that's what I'm saying. It's almost like. In the seventies, no one has to knows how to play a gangster other than as an Italian stereotype. Yeah, yeah. So at least one of the guys is like, "Hey, yo, what's up?" It's about? me, Tony hey. Pastrami. Hey. hey, sugar. I'm Tony Pastrami. Let's go get a po' boy. <laughs> what? 
Okay. Uh, hey, let's talk about this movie. Let's talk about... Okay. So... Wait, what was the connection between this and the other Sugar Island? I'll tell you when we get to Eve's Bayou. Okay. So this movie, I liked. I'm not okay. going to say it was a good movie. Well, let's start with this. What is your experience with black exploitation? I was going to pitch that ball to you because you're the man when it comes to that. I don't... Okay. I, I honestly... My black horror experience begins with, honestly, Tales from the Hood. Oh, sure, sure, sure. So the whole 70s black exploitation thing, you don't know. The only 70s movie that has a black character in it that I, horror movie when it comes to, is like Dawn of the Dead for me. But I'm saying, like, even just normal black exploitation movies, you haven't no, seen No, I've never, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not oh, well versed at all. Oh, man. So just give us a history lesson in black exploitation. Well, I don't know if I could do a full history lesson, but I will say that at a certain point, um, uh, a few indie movies come out like uh, uh, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. Okay. Uh, as well as The Spook Who Sat By The Door and uh, a few other like Superfly. Really, it was super. Basically. Are any of these titles going to get the shit kicked out of us? No, all these are okay. okay. There are ones that are worse. The Spook but, By The Door is not a good one. I know, but it's a real. That's a, that's what it's called. Okay. Uh, and it was. It's. Uh, I forget who made that. That's not. Um, Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, the point is, is that Superfly was really the movie that really exploded everything. Kind of the way that, like, um, uh, that King Boxer, which came to this movie. This, this country has f- maybe five deadly venoms. I forget what it's called here. Started like the Jan- the, the Shaw Brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That after after that, yeah, same with Superfly. Superfly was made for no money, and it single handedly saved the studio that put it out. Like they were like done. Like they were like. I guess we're just going to close. And they put out Superfly, and they made such a profit on Superfly that it was just like, okay. And then, you know, then you get your Shaft and your Black Caesar and your Trouble Man and, you know, Foxy Brown. And, you know, the whole black exploitation thing is, is there's a few good documentaries about it that I would recommend. People. And just, just to be clear, these are not necessarily or at all horror movies. These are just. No, 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 no. no. Yeah. The, 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 Movies like Blackula and Blackenstein and this movie Sugar Hill. Uh, there's also I forget the name of the other one. Uh, there uh, was the one they talked about uh, that would be Abby. Is that? Oh yeah, Abby. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all these movies were more part of the. And uh, you know, sometimes people refer to black exploitation as a movement, and I think that's unfair. Okay, it's more like a phenomenon. Hollywood gets the memo that guess what? If you put black characters in movies, black folks will play to see the movie. And then you get a bunch of money you might not have been getting before, or at least not in the same amount. Um, now, were all these movies as profitable as Superfly? No, no, no. Uh, but you know, it takes a while for Hollywood to figure out like this. This this pony might not be winning as many races as we think it is. Yeah, they're just going to keep going with it because a few of them do. You know, I think like Foxy Brown does really well. Uh, Blackula does really well. Um, and so, with the few that do well, they justify a bunch of people sort of knocking off, and. Uh, as we sort of saw in horror noir, but and some of you probably know, this is a variety of things. I mean, some of the people making these movies are very white people. You know, like Here's, just to give you an idea of how of how black exploitation brushed up against um, Hollywood in a big way. Uh, one thing I was thinking about during horror noir was Rosalind Cash's character in the Omega Man. Right, that is a right. classic black exploitation right. character right there, and that came out three years before this did so. Right, and so I think um, I think you get that sort of influence on culture, uh, and, and and that Hollywood moment it influenced a lot of aspects of black culture. Um, like I said, there's a few good documentaries about this. Um, I would recommend checking them out. Uh, I've been meaning to write more about black exploitation films 
for the website. So I should just do that. But I, I love a lot of these movies. Some of them are very bad, but um, <laughs> I love a lot of them. And it's hard to know, you know, like some were put up by Larry Cohen. Like Larry Cohen started with Black Caesar and, and whatever. So there were definitely like white people making some of these movies, but not all of them, as we saw with Blackula was, uh, you know, black star, black director, Maybe not so much anyone else on set, but uh, <laughs> but at least they had this uh, uh, black director sort of pushing his vision of, of what Blackula could be. Um, so for me, Sugar Hill was just on a list of movies that I somehow haven't seen yet, you know, yeah. because I've managed to catch a lot of these movies, but not all of them. And, and at a certain point, it's hard to know how far to dig because that is, you might run out of good. It's It's sort of like with horror, right? Like once you've seen a certain amount of horror some people are just like, they're done, right? They're like, okay, I've got 25 movies I like, so then I don't really need to see anymore. And they're not like us where we're like, oh, there's some random Czech movie we still haven't watched. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I hear it might be okay. Let's watch that. You know, um, that's that's not for everyone. Well, with exploitation, you know, some of these movies were super low budget. Real, I mean, again, it's like, you know, try to watch Blackenstein and tell me, like, <laughs> it's a watchable film. Um, but to be fair, for me, a lot of these movies really do work, and there's some that I, I love, I just think are so much fun, even if they're kind of low. You know, like a great example, a movie with another problematic name, but I really love, it's a movie called Savage. has an exclamation point on the end. All right. Uh, it's also part of that whole Filipino film movement where everyone was making movies in the Philippines because it costs no money and they could do whatever they wanted. Savage is like a uh, guy ends up... Uh, in the Philippines fighting for the government. And as he gets betrayed by the government, he starts to uh, interact with the rebels. And all of a sudden he decides that the struggle of the rebels is like the struggle of his people back in America. And it's like, he discovers his like black radicalness Mm. in the Philippines fighting for these Filipino rebels. And it's called savage. It's actually like really fun. Um, Anyway. So sugar Hill for me, the vibe of sugar Hill, which I'm sure for you is a little different. You don't watch a lot of 70s movies, period, let alone black exploitation movies. Yes. Sugar Hill, for me, makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's a very common theme. I could imagine almost the same plot points, but with Pam Greer acting like she's going to seduce someone and then actually shooting them. You know? Yeah, like, that's... that's there, there's, there's the element of that, of where um, Marky Bay uses kind of like sensuality to like get people to drop their defenses, and right. then before you know it, the fucking zombies are clawing them apart so let's start with the things that i think really work in this film first of all she is amazing yeah she's incredible the fact that she didn't do that many other movies is uh just a real shame because i think that her performance holds this whole thing together especially when my other favorite performance but i think is not a good performance i just enjoyed i know who you're gonna say baron baron's zamudi 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 that guy is so fucking over the top the entire time but what i love about it is this is the thing you're watching this movie i'm sure there are white people watching this movie who see the baron's performance and they just are like yeah he's playing a black guy then there are some white people watching the performance you get real uncomfortable because they go you know what Every time the Baron is tricking a white person, he starts to act like a stereotype of black people. That's weird. That was me. That's weird. Yeah. That starts to make me a little uncomfortable. And then it's the next level of people who are like, oh, yeah, look at this character, this guy. He's literally, you know, embodying this idea that, like, um, 
that shucking and jiving, you know, that 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 playing the part is a way to trick the stupid white oppressor so that they don't know what you're doing. See, I was on board that camp and then the ending happened and I was like, ooh. Okay, we'll get to the end. We'll get there. We'll get there. No, I I will say the ending is a problem problematic without me criticizing the rest. I his performance is intentional because he turns it off. Every time it's finally revealed that he's actually there to murder these people. He laughs jovially. He laughs and then he's no longer dumb and he's like, Oh, you you thought you were better than me. It's weird because I'm literally a god and I'm here to kill you. So that's you know what's that really sucks for you. You know what's really cool about that character historically um was the inspiration Baron Samudi was the inspiration for Papa Doc in Haiti. The oh, dictator. Yeah. He used that. So he had like the, the fucking what are they called? The um the Tantan Makut? Yeah. Dudes running around dressed like that, kidnapping people. Scary. That's terrifying. That's scary. That's so fucking scary. Um so yeah, I mean the the performance is definitely uh pushing of boundaries, let's say. But I think that I think that it only works because she's so good. Like if if she was not as central and as engaging a character, then his fucking bullshit would derail the whole movie. Absolutely. Like. But it's because she's so serious and present and really engaging that his stuff kind of like you're like, okay, I see what's going on here. It's fine, whatever. Um, I also think surprisingly, because I think in a lot of these movies, I love them, but a lot of these movies, the um, the white villain is like so surface because they don't matter it's all about the black characters yeah so the white villain sometimes is like nothing i actually think the head dude in this like really works he's really gross and he's really awful and he's always in a bad mood with everyone he's so horrible to his girlfriend yeah the problem for me is that uh we get this problematic thing of like the white woman and the black woman sort of having the conflict that the white man and, and the black woman should be having, you know, like she's sort of the stand in. Yes. You know? That's that can be played in a way that works. And in this film, it's not played very well. And then the ending is a huge issue. Before we get there, other um, things that actually work in the movie, the look of the zombies is so fucking good. It's so unsettling and weird and simple. Well, okay, so what we're used to with zombie movies is the world of Romero, in which... They're blue. Well, yeah. These are, in in Romero's world, these are people who recently died for the most part, and a lot of them are people who have been chewed on. Yes. And now they're reanimated, so there's a lot of grossness. And as we've moved on from that, we tend to focus on the grossness of it, right? These zombies have been dead a very long time. So we they have to be corporeal enough that they can do damage, but we have to believe that they are have been dead for a while, and we have to believe that they are, for for lack of a better word, uh, not human anymore. Yeah, exactly. They're these zombies are uh, corpses, but they're not like it doesn't feel like immediately reanimated. It's not like a it does. You know what it does? Their look makes you feel the truth of it, which is this is not a biological thing. No, Baron Specter. Zim- Baron Zamudi is not like, all right, well, let me infect these corpses with the virus, and then they'll just naturally come. This is a ma- this is about magic. He's the revenants, a, yeah. He's doing a magic thing. And so these zombies look upsetting and dead, but also supernatural. And that's important for the design, I think. And the most distinct thing is that they have these gigantic silvery eyes. Right. Um, 
which is the I think the creepiest thing about that is it it sort of harkens back to what H.R. Geiger said about his design for the xenomorph when they were like, why didn't you give it eyes? And he's like, when a thing does not have eyes, you cannot see where the thing is looking. You do not know if the thing is looking at you. So in this thing, that's a terrible Geiger impression. He's not fucking Colonel Clink. Um, But the creepiest thing about these things is like any time the zombies are on screen, it almost felt like they could be looking at you. Right. Because you didn't know where they were fucking looking because they don't have any features on their eyes. Well, and they, they very much do that thing where... They're not present a lot until they are, and then you can't get away from them. Yes. They don't, we don't get long shots of them chasing people. These zombies don't put in any work. No, they're just there all the time. You're in a situation where you can't get away, and then they show up, and it works well. I mean, don't get us wrong. This is a low budget movie. There's no real gore effects or anything like that. Um, it, it's not like a it's it's not like an, a very gross affair with a lot of practical effect, anything like that. No, but for what they have, I think this is a very effective method, and they use it pretty well. Um, I it's escaping me right now the deaths of all the villains, but the one that got me was they seal a guy in a casket with snakes. Yeah, it's pretty gruesome. Yeah, what was some other shit they did? They beheaded a dude. They beheaded a dude. Um, they throw a guy in quicksand, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. They scratch a guy to death in the in the oh. in the masseuse lounge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the female zombies come and they just rip them apart. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, uh, I think um, it's not. It's the kind of horror movie, and I, you can make an argument that Tales from the Hood is like this at times too. It's a wish fulfillment horror movie. This is a revenge film that has horror elements. Really, it's not a horror movie where. You're scared that these things are going to jump out and get the hero or get you. You know, this yeah. is about the person you're pulling for getting revenge, and that is almost why the ending is even more upsetting. And what happens in the ending, Liam? Well, they finally get the boss alone, and there are all the reanimated corpses there, and they get the boss. You know, the reanimated corpses all—it's all his old capos and stuff. They're back to life, and mm-hmm. they all get him. And then the only one left alive is his girlfriend. And you forgot that uh, Baron Samudi gifts Sugar Hill with his cane. Oh, that's true. He gives her his cane. He does. He gives Sugar Hill his cane. And then um, she obviously has to pay a price to Baron Samudi. He's done all this stuff. And I, the whole movie, if I didn't know how it was going to end, which I did because Hard Noir tells you how it ends, uh, I thought it would be her soul. That mm-hmm. would be what he desires. She's doing evil. He's doing evil for her. But no, she replaces her soul with this white woman. And it's clear what he's gi- what she's giving to Baron's booty is not this white woman's soul, but her booty. Because we've established at the beginning of this film that Baron's booty is known throughout time and space as a lover of women. He is. He's a he's a he's a, he's a lusty fellow. And so he just says, take this woman. So what we got here is, A, Baron Zamudi is willing to forego whatever price of gold or silver or immortal soul that that Sugar Hill might offer him in order to get a white lady. Mm -hmm. And he grabs at her in a way that is just too much. It's just, it is exactly like you were saying earlier. It It is the one moment where he is, reenacting a stereotype but he's not doing it to trick someone he's doing it because he might as well be yelling give me that pussy as he like carries her away it's out of control and 
both he and Sugar Hill don't acknowledge that this woman obviously is doing this is is not doing this of her own volition. Oh, no. So like again, and this might be hard for people to understand, but let me be very clear about it. Um, when we equate uh, retribution to rape, we are supporting rape culture. So yeah. he is going to rape this woman. I would be more comfortable within the context of this movie if they just found a new way to murder her because that's what everyone else gets. They get murdered. Yeah. But it's like this white lady, who, by the way, other than getting in a fight with Sugar Hill, is not, from we, what we can tell, directly responsible no. for anything that she's a ter- She's a racist piece of shit, but I don't think that equates to fucking whatever he's going to do to her. So uh, this is a problem, and and, it, and it's a problem in two directions. One, it's a problem just because it's unnecessarily cruel, and it, it puts a taint on the rest of the film. But two, it also just fulfills a really shitty stereotype, and this is part of the issue, I think, in general with black exploitation films because, again, not all of them, but a lot of them were made by folks who were trying to who weren't necessarily aware of the ways that what they were doing or didn't care to be aware of the ways of what they were doing could also support negative stereotypes so like there are those movies in which there are criminals and those criminals are very black and in a way the portrayal of those criminals is actually humanizing because it shows how lots of people who are desperate become criminals. Yes. And then other times, those criminals are heroes, not because of the struggle against a carceral system that's unjust, but because that's just what black people are like. And the director doesn't care to like nuance it. You know? Not at all, yeah. Or the worst for me is a movie in which the criminals... uh on the street are just as bad as the cops and you got to get through two ang- and I'm always like come on that's not that's not real I mean a criminal can be but don't give me this like middle road person who's like well I got the, the these people on the one side and the pigs on the other side you're just doing cops work for them then like that's not what you know, yeah yeah give me a more nuanced view again especially knowing a lot of these movies came out after Superfly so we already have uh, this guy who granted is a total misogynist monster but um but this model of the criminal who's like this is bad i don't want to be a criminal this is how i can get over so i'm gonna do everything i can to stop being a criminal the model's right there and it made all the money in the world yeah so yeah. for you to like try to be like you know what i'm gonna do a black exploitation movie but in this one you know cops just aren't that bad that's like uh, that's not what i want to see no one wants to see that Why yeah yeah gonna, uh, anyways sorry point is sugar hill is <clears throat> up until the end a very satisfying amusing not groundbreaking not scary but definitely fun uh uh supernatural revenge film and for me that ending doesn't ruin the movie it's not like i can never watch this again i'm so deeply offended but it like it taints the movie so that the movie's like okay that's fine it's it does because it turns for me that ending when you view the rest of the Baron's actions through that through that ending, it goes from him being the trickster, right? Which is fine. I'm fine with like a trickster. Love character. the trickster. It goes from him being a trick a trickster character into him being like something out of a minstrel show, right? Exactly. And uh, it it just it just hits with such a fucking thud 
because the rest of it I'm willing to like look pat like the scene the scene where they're in the fields and he is literally calling the white guy Massa and he's like show enough Massa I'll do that for you you're like okay this is a little uh questionable but you know he's actually like a deity who's just fucking with these people and he's using it against them but then at the very end when he tells Sugar, like, here's your cane. Now you must pay the price. And she's like, well, how about this white lady? He's like, oh, ha, ha, ha. Scoops her up as she's screaming. You're like, oh, that's where we're going. That's where we're fucking going right. with this. You know, you just completely. Well, I just think politically at the time, people, there were people who may have thought that that was not demeaning, that that was like empowering. I guess. But they're wrong. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, like, that doesn't make it okay. No, not at all. But I'm just saying, I think that that's not just a moment where they kind of lo- lost track. I think it was a moment of, uh, I think it was more a moment of misogyny of like, yeah, serve that lady right. And it's like, well, you're kind of playing into something that's actually just as negative for you as it is for her, you know? Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. It's a shame because I think up until that point, again, not that it's an amazing movie, but I think uh, her performance and... It's a fun um, movie. Yeah, it's done well. It's it moves along. It's well directed. You know, it's goofy, but it's a lot of fun. And then that ending just really kind of put a dour thing on it. So, you know, I'm not. You know, we're not in the business of like not of like, uh, you know, knocking a movie down for no reason. And you know, knowing how it ends, it might still be worth watching it because you enjoy it or whatever. Um, so I'm not like recommending against it, but you know. It, I just have to say it was not as it, it sort of soured me on the movie a teeny bit, which is a bummer uh, because uh, there you know the idea of a black exploitation horror movie gets me really excited because those are two things I love. So. Yes. So that was Sugar Hill. I guess we'll take a quick break and when we come back. We'll talk about 1997's Southern Gothic coming <laughs> Southern, of age. Yeah, Southern Gothic coming of age film. Eve's Bayou. We're right back. Beneath the surface, there are secrets. I saw Daddy and Mr. Moreau. Which one of your patients you gonna see, Louis? Beneath the magic, there are warnings. How do you kill someone with murder? Beneath the lies, there are truths. It's like she's sleepwalking. She's a child, Rose. Too dangerous to tell. You speak to my wife, and I will kill you. Oh, God. Samuel L. Jackson, Lynn Whitfield, Eve's Bayou, rated R. Starts Friday. And we are back to talk about 1997's thrilling neo-noir film, Eve's Bayou. Eve's Bayou. Starring Journey Smollett-Bell, Cassie, direct, written and directed by Cassie Lemons. Also starring, I fucked that up horribly, also starring Lynn Whitfield, Debbie Morgan, Roger Guinevere Smith, Vondi Curtis-Hall, and Samuel Lennox Jackson. Is it Lennox? I don't know. Samuel Lord Jackson. Uh, this movie's fucking awesome. It's so I really great. like this movie. So here's the summation of this movie. This is great. After her daughter witnesses her father having an affair, she begins a chain reaction to tear her family apart. There you go. That's, Basically, yeah. That's, that's it. Now, aside from Samuel Jackson talking like Gambit throughout the whole movie, what did you like about this? <laughs> um, so this is a movie that I think one, I think the story is interesting and nuanced and really well done. I really like the ways that it deals with themes of memory and history. Yes. And um, I like that it has this uh, aura of kind of supernatural stuff, but 
it's never clear exactly what that mm-hmm. is, you know? I think the vision thing is real, but um, I, the, everything else is sort of, like, not clear. Uh, I love the performances, which is hard to say in a movie with kids, because a lot of time kids are bad. But the two kids we have to deal with the most in the film are both really stellar. They're amazing. Uh, just unbelievable. And I don't understand how they're both not just famous people now. <laughs> Do you want me to tell you the Sugar Hill Connection? Sure. Uh, Von D. Curtis Hall, who plays Julian Grey Raven in this, who is Aunt Moselle's lover, the guy with the long hair. Yep. You might recognize him from, he was in the movie Die Hard 2, Die Harder. He's the guy that Bruce Willis sprays with the, he's one of the henchmen. Right. He's also in a little movie, a 1994 film starring Wesley Snipes called Sugar Hill. Oh, I didn't know he was in Sugar Hill. Yeah, huh. so there you go. I need to watch Sugar Hill, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I I think the uh, performances by the young women are great. I think the performances by the other women are great. I think, you know, Samuel L. Jackson is great. I think actually this is one of the few films where it's like he is the least impressive performance of the main cast. So one thing about all the performances in this movie is that they're so, you only really pick up on certain things in retrospect. Right. Specifically with Sam Jackson and um, I feel terrible. Uh, I believe it's Lynn Winfield, the actress who played Cicely. Sure. There are so many moments in this movie, in the beginning especially, where Cicely has this reaction to something she hears. Yeah. That you're like, oh, that's a kind of a strange reaction for a child. It's genuine. I buy it, but it's a strange reaction for a child to have. And then later, at the end, when it's revealed what is going on, you're like, oh, it's like this whole idea of like. She actually has this like strange like not uh, not f- she has she has a love for her father that is we'll say inappropriate and a lot of the rac- like the reaction she has like when when no, Lynn Whitfield is Roz you're thinking of Megan Good gotcha yo Roz what up also amazing performance Debbie Morgan fucking takes the cake in this movie she's the best one for me yeah uh, Moselle Baptiste Delacroix. She is unbelievable in this film. The when she's on the porch and and she's giving that speech, uh, it is one of the most like arresting moments. Yeah, in a film ever. So, real quick, just the scene when because uh, there's a scene in the very beginning when 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 Eve, uh, played by Journey Smollett, she sees her. She's in the barn at this party that her parents are having, and she's like, she goes up to the barn, and her father comes out there with a woman who's not her mother. It's like a family friend and she sees them having sex. And then she, I forget how she like drops something or something. Her father's like, here's what you saw. Like, you didn't see this, like, oh, blah, 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 you know, go back inside. She goes in and tells her sister and her sister's like, no, 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 no. Here's what you saw. And she says like, oh, they were drunk, blah, blah, blah. What you saw was he told her a joke. And, you know, I think that plays upon like the malleability of memory, which I think the whole, because the whole movie is told in retrospect. Like this is a movie about the summer I killed my father. Right. Um, but the moment when, and what's the actress's name? Megan Good? Megan Good. When Eve tells her, oh, I saw daddy with Mrs. So-and-so, Megan Good's reaction initially is like, it's like, no, you didn't. There's jealousy in there that I didn't pick up on until later at the end of the movie when, you, right. when, when you're you like, oh, holy shit. You know, she was the one who... Sure. You know, so we should just get to it. The, the base of the plot of this movie is Sam Jackson plays a, like a, a doctor who's like a womanizer about town. Um, the the movie suggests that he is uh, 
it does a few things with this idea that like maybe this is something he shares with his sister, like there's something about their family. Yes. But it also makes it really clear that he's in a community where being a doctor is equivalent to being a rock star. Yes. And that his wife is one of the few people in town who doesn't think he's fucking magic. Yeah. So like it's not like he's a desperate hound dog sniffing around at other people's houses. No, he's taking advantage of his position. All day long. Oh, Sunday. Who who works on Sundays? Yeah. All day long, people, uh, women, are just so impressed with him. Now, I'm sure many of them don't want to sleep with him, but yeah. some of them do. And he is a man of weak character who yes. cannot say no to this many women. No. Maybe if it was a couple, he could. But just, you get the feeling in the movie that it's like, he just can't. He just can't do it. Um, and meanwhile, his fa- his. Uh, children are, I guess, only just starting to figure out something's wrong. His yeah. wife is only just starting to figure out something's wrong. And meanwhile, his sister, played by Debbie Morgan, is very good friends with his wife. Yes. And she kind of is okay with who he is as a human. I think she'd prefer him to be different. But she's having to deal with the pain this is causing her friend. Yes. While she also still loves her brother and kind of doesn't, I mean, not that she doesn't care. She'd prefer him to be... It's also revealed that she has tendencies like this in her, in her past. Sure, but I, I do think that like her example is a lot less hurtful than what he's been doing. You know? Yeah, um, because the difference being that she expresses regret at the pain she's caused, whereas right. you get the feeling that he doesn't give a shit. Um, so the whole the summer I killed my father thing comes from about halfway through the movie... Um, well, okay, so a couple of things we should mention. One, uh, his sister has visions. Yes, she has visions. And it's not considered voodoo. No. It, she's She sees herself just as a spiritualist. She can see things. There's a woman in town who practices voodoo, mm-hmm. and they have a tension. There's, a, there's a, a, a rivalry there between what she can do. And the way the movie is set up, what she can do is real. And I suspect that the director might actually think that that's not super you know so as a culture we say supernatural for anything weird yes it's all supernatural well supernatural really means something outside of nature so like technically speaking we describe everything in the bible supernatural whereas the people who wrote the bible would never use a term like supernatural because for them it's very natural it's real yeah 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 god did stuff that's what's more natural than god doing a thing even if it's something we didn't expect to happen it's very natural. In the same way, you get the feeling that what the voodoo lady does may or may not be real. It might be hucksterism. It might be scary magic. The movie never clarifies. What she does, which is see things for people, whether that's in their future or in their past, the movie suggests that's very real. However, what I love that the movie does is suggest just because it's real doesn't mean it's effective. She doesn't see stuff where she's like, oh, clearly next Tuesday at 10 o'clock, your cat is going to jump off. No, no, no. no. She gets visions. And then she has to figure out what those visions mean. And for most of the movie, she's not very good at that. She's, not, <laughs> she's still trying to figure out exactly what these uh, visions are about. And it's not like some magic trick. It's just like an ability she's trying to sort through. Yes. You know? Anyway, so her visions are coming into play. Yeah. And what happens is uh, Cicely tells Eve that 
um, one night their father comes home drunk and he sits downstairs and she goes downstairs to comfort him because uh, her and her mom or him and his him and her mom got in a fight because they've been fighting a lot recently because he's you know out gallivanting around town. Yeah, and he makes a move on her, right, and then slaps her. Um, so Eve hates her father for this. She goes to the woman who is not. She goes to the one, the, the, the voodoo, well, I guess we'll say voodoo priestess, priest, wishes her father dead. Yeah. Okay, okay, I can do that. So she does this little ritual. The movie ends when uh, the husband of the woman that her father had been seeing, played to the fucking hilt by Roger Guinevere Smith, who you might know as the assistant from Tales from the Hood, Corbin Burnson's segment. Sure, you may know him from a million other movies. Super good-looking actor. And in every black movie in the 90s, basically. Dancing so saucily in the beginning. Yeah. He comes up, and he fucking defends his wife's honor. He tells Sam Jackson, like, you say one more word to her, and I'll shoot you dead. Sam Jackson's like, all right. Good night, Maddie. Bang. Shot dead right in front of his daughter. She wished her father dead. Father dies. Then she finds a letter that her father wrote to her mother, where it basically reveals that his daughter was the one who made the move Made the move on him. And he hit her, not because of like, fuck you, do what I tell you to, but more of like, what the fuck are you doing? Right. Um, so that's, so, and then Eve goes through life. And he's racked with uh, regret yes. for hitting her. Like, yes. It's not even like he hit her and that's fine. So basically, the whole movie leads him out, makes him out to be sort of a scumbag and you find out in the end that he actually does have like a conscience and he actually does care about his family. Yeah, I mean, it, there's a sense in the movie where when you know that it's leading towards his death because that's how the movie begins. This is the summer I killed my father. The first line of dialogue is this is the summer I killed my father. And then as it's going, you're kind of thinking, all right, that's fine. Let's just get to the father killing because it'll be fine. Such that when it's revealed, right, he wasn't like that at all. It makes you rethink the whole film. Again, not in a way that defends his infidelity, but in a way you're like, okay, things are more complicated than you think it is when you're a kid. It's all about the malleability of memory. Yeah, so the uh, there's a lot of... Uh, so let me just go ahead and say, I actually think almost everything in this movie is perfect. The only thing I think that is a problem for me personally, I think the soundtrack is a little overwhelming. I think there are times where yeah. it really crescendos unnecessarily <laughs> and it's like distracting. And I get that that was the style at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a movie from 1997. This is a movie with artistic ambitions in 1997 uh, and with a Hollywood studio behind it that wants it to like do well. Yeah. Uh, enough so that the director felt like they messed with her movie. So I don't know. That doesn't mean they picked the music, but I'm not surprised that the music's like, yeah, like just overwhelming. You're like, yeah, I get it. I get that this scene is important. You don't have to, you know, but other than that, I think a lot of it is really great. And one of the things is the cinematography, which this isn't a movie with a lot of like camera tricks or it's not like a sweeping whatever. It's a very tight film, but the way it's filmed is amazing. That fucking scene where Aunt Moselle is talking about her lover. Yeah. That scene is like, that should be taught she, in film school. They show it in the mirror. You see it happening in the mirror and then she walks backwards and it's like she's in the moment 
in the mirror. It's like this reflection of whatever. But another one that maybe this is too obvious for people, but to me, it really worked. The movie ends with uh, the sisters on this sort of land bridge, and it's got water on one side and water on the other. Yeah. The water on the one side is still, and the water on the other side is chaos. And when you look at this image, it's like everyone thinks of memory as the water on the one side. It's still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's solid. You can make out most of it. It's blurry, but you can make it It's there. Whereas memory is more like the water on the other side. It's moving. You can only see the vaguest of shapes. Yeah, yeah. You'd have to get really into it to see anything. And I think that maybe is too nail in the head for some people. But for me, ending the movie that way really like sort of... Uh, is the final touch on a film that is all about nuance. Every, yes. Everything that Eve goes through has another nuance to it. It has something she didn't realize. Even when she goes to do the evil magic on her father, she finds out she's wrong. She's like, where's the voodoo doll? The lady's like, what? Yeah, what do you, what, what, yeah, yeah. I don't got a voodoo doll. I put the, the hair in a coffin, buried the coffin in the ground. The snake's out there. Go look at it. Like, Yeah, go check it out. And she's like, but I, but I wanted the doll. Like, there's so much that Eve doesn't know, and that's part of what the movie's about. I think a very key part in this movie, even in the fucking name, Eve, this movie's about a loss of innocence. Right. This movie is about someone going from this life where their father is immutable and perfect and great and grand yeah, and all this. And then the loss of innocence comes from, in a very biblical sense, the gaining of knowledge. Right. And even if... It's a very childish belief to think, like, I wished my father dead, I did a ritual, and he died. That's my fault. But even if you take that away, there's still... This movie is about learning about death. Well, to be fair, (laughs) even without the voodoo ritual, she still kind of causes his death. Yeah, sort of. I'm just... Look, look. Everyone is responsible for their own actions. Yes. But she does rat him out to the husband. Yeah, and, and by the way, a very good, like, that scene, you know, could be played in almost like a humorous note. Yeah. And it's played very well. She's good and he's good in that scene. That's what I'm saying is, like, I don't necessarily know if there was any supernatural, like, because right, right, right. it wasn't like Sam Jackson was just, like, not fucking his wife. Right. And it just, like, happened to be at the bar and she was being, like, she was just being nasty about it. Like... I'm not entirely convinced that anything beyond Aunt Moselle's visions, anything in this film actually happened that was really supernatural. No, I I agree. I don't think, I don't, I mean, the visions are real. That's important. Yeah. And she can have visions too. She has visions yeah. too. So I don't want to ignore the psychic angle. But again, I don't think the movie suggests that the psychic stuff is supernatural. It's unpredictable. Yeah. But magic isn't real. The voodoo lady the voodoo is she's a huckster. She's yeah. she's doing what she needs to do to survive. I I'm not trying she's to She's terrifying her. and striking and adds a weird element to the movie, but there's no real fucking magic going on. I don't think so, no. Um another thing I really liked about oh I have a note here. Uh Sam Jackson at one point calls his daughter Pumpkinhead, so fuck you. Um Oh my god, I hate you so much. Uh in retrospect, when I was watching this movie Aunt Moselle and Uncle Harry right. have a very real affection and connection to the children. Yes. A very wholesome connection to the children. Yes. That's lacking with Sam Jackson. He, I'm not saying yeah. he feels like he's not this like leering old man who's looking at his daughter. No. He feels very detached, whereas Uncle Harry and Aunt Moselle, 
they both have like a very like in the very beginning when Eve is like selling chocolate and like Sam Jackson's too busy fucking cutting it up on the dance floor. Who 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 Uncle Harry comes up. Hey, what's up, kid? I think part of that is um it's revealed uh you know, the pain that uh Moselle has gone through. Yeah, and what's kind of fucked up is I guess spoiler alert. I was like kind of live tweeting this this movie on the Hard Business Twitter, and I was yeah. like, "Man, Uncle Harry's such a good dude." And as soon as I said that, next scene, funeral. Fuck. Yeah. I also love his parting line from that party. Um, was amazing, which is just like, "Good night, Eve. Good night, Cicely. Fuck you, Doc." <laughs> but I think okay, but I think what you're supposed to get from that is that, um, Doc Samuel Jackson's character. He hasn't actually had to suffer. No, no. So part of his, he's going through life like the golden child he is. Mm -hmm. Whereas his sister, and partly I think the movie suggests, and you are supposed to be able to figure out, that it's harder for her as a black woman. Yeah, I mean, her experience as a woman is tougher. It's probably not a cakewalk for him as a black man that time. No, no, no. But but the idea is that they're both in this tough situation, but she has had to suffer more. Yeah. So she's more mature and she's chosen someone who is more open. Whereas his relationship, what I'm saying is I think her relationship is healthy. And part of what keeps him from connecting to his children is that he's not fully present with his wife. That his relationship with his kids is related to his relationship with his wife, which is that he is not his full self in that house ever. I have no doubt that he actually loves his children. Oh sure, I I actually don't doubt that he loves his wife. Fair enough. Not that that makes anything okay that he's doing. Not at all. But I think that he thinks this is just who I am. This is who I am, and I couldn't change if I tried. Sorry, Mona, me. This is just who I am. Right. right. Throws a fucking kinetically charged. He does sound like Gambit. He does sound like Gambit. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But. but I think the movie, I mean, I think the movie is about, one of the things the movie's about is the subtle nuances of people loving and caring about each other when they're not perfect, where they're flawed, they have um, things that they are struggling with, that they are bad at, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I think partly what's going on here is uh, that he... Yeah, he brings all this pain, and he's a bad person in some ways, but that he's also, in some ways, uh, a person who does have love and compassion. You know, and yeah. I think that's what the movie is partly trying to show us: is all the this complexity that the memory isn't just a. It's not just an, when we say this is a movie about memory, it's not like a detached meditation on memory. It's a thing about how we're formed by these memories. Absolutely. And they're complicated and we don't remember them perfectly. And sometimes what we think is real is not real. It's all about the concept of a lot of times our memories are just memories of memories of memories. There's like a photocopy that's been copied over and over again. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's also about the, the you know, how Eve has this very childish understanding of the world. It was very black and white issues. There's right and there's wrong. And then at the end of the movie, there's she realizes that there's Fifty Shades of Grey. And this, you know, there's... Oh, my gosh. Or, I meant to make a biohazard reference, Shades of Grey. There's many shades of Grey. There's more than 50. 
God damn it. Uh, no, this is just a great movie. I mean, it's 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 got a, it, it explores a lot of interesting themes, and I think it has enough horrific elements, even without like the true horror from this comes from the idea that a a child thinks she murdered her father. Right. That is the true horror of this. Right. But there's enough weird imagery and the well, psychic and shit. There's also this underlying thing. I don't know about you, but it was a deep relief to me when it was clear that the dad was not a pedophile. Because oh, yeah, <laughs> but you know what I mean, like. In the sense that the movie could, I think that's, it's sort of being haunted by, it's part of what is sort of at the edge of the film is like, can I trust this guy? Yeah. Like, what's going to happen? Is something horrible going to happen? And, you know, it never goes full horrible, but the fact that you realize like, no, he's he's a bad dude in a a few ways, but he didn't do anything really terrible other than respond you know in in that scene at least yeah i mean it's sort of um if he had been a pedophile there would have been no tension in the movie because you're like who gives a shit you you calls the death of a pedophile the fact that she the fact that she believes um and thus for all intents and purposes that's all that matters the fact that she believes that she calls the death of her father wrongly right that weighs on a person that's that's right. horrific. That's that's right. carrying that guilt and that grief through life is um something that obviously this narrator is because this narrator is telling the story in retrospective, it's obviously still shaped her as a human being. Right. So I don't I don't I think that's that's all I got on that movie. Did you know yeah. that Sam Jackson calls his daughter Pumpkinhead? Stop it. Um yeah, if you are looking for something with lots of gore and chilling scares, this is not for you. But I think it is, um, it's a movie that sticks with you and it's got its creepy aspects and I just thought it was really beautiful. It's incredibly well done. I cannot stress that enough. It's in almost every level, like technically it's such a, I don't know, there's, there's, and there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of themes that, um, you know, obviously I'm not a young black child growing up in the sixties in fucking Louisiana. What? You're not? I know, weird. But there was a lot of themes in this that struck a chord with me about growing up. Right. Um, you know, not to get too personal. Um, when I was a child, my father uh, had an extramarital affair, and that whole idea of you have this sort of loving your father and believing him to be a, believing him to be a perfect uh, person and hating him for what he's done to the family. Those two feelings can exist in you at the same time, and it's this weird tension that can fuck with a person if it's not dealt with. And luckily, in my case, I like to think I dealt with it. You know, I love my dad. You know, my parents are still together, so I, I guess it was dealt with. In this movie, I'm not entirely sure that there really was... I mean, the movie doesn't have a happy ending. And I don't think that Eve's character, in the long run, uh, ever finds any real peace with this. Because we're hearing the story because she's telling us about it. Um, and that, that, was, that was something that the, the life... You know, the, the impact that something like that can have on someone's life and how it can shape them as a person, that was something that... You know, it, I didn't have this, like, I wasn't, like, weeping in joy that finally I found a movie that understood me, but that struck a chord with me as, yeah. as something that, ha- you know, an experience in my own life. I obviously didn't wish my father dead, but, you know. Right. So that's Eve's Bayou. It was very good. Very and good. We can't recommend it enough or hard noir enough where you could hear them talk about it as well as a bunch of other really great movies. Yes. And some bad movies. Yeah, like Black Frankenstein. I'm sorry. Blackenstein. Black Frankenstein is a wrestler in the book Swan Song by Robert McCammon that everyone should read. Okay. So, 
if you like this episode, you want to hear more. If you haven't listened to us already, and I don't know why you haven't. If this is the first episode, welcome. Yeah. If you want to hear more, you can go to cinepunks.com or you can go to iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. We have episodes on there. We have a lot of other great podcasts on there, including Liam's. Liam has like 40 other podcasts on there. Stop Cinepunks, it. Stop it. The Flight Stuff, if you like Alpha Flight for whatever reason, and Eric Roberts. No, Eric Roberts is the fucking man, is it, on Cinepunks? No, it's not. Man. It's going to be over soon, too. So. Oh, is it? Yeah, episode 100. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Whatever. You don't listen. You don't care about Eric Roberts. But that's a big part of your life. I feel <laughs> that. We should do an episode where we watch Eric Roberts' horror movies. I'd be down with that. We could do The Ambulance and probably just The Ambulance. <laughs> the Ambulance twice. He's done a lot of horror movies, but that's the only one I can think of that's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, we also have, uh, if you head on over to Cinebox.com, you can see how to subscribe to our Patreon. If you're on Twitter... Or Instagram or Facebook, you can find us at theharbiz666. Um, you can email us at theharbiz at gmail.com with suggestions, threats, comments, whatever. Yep. Uh, if you're on iTunes, remember to rate, review, subscribe, download, download, download. And if you leave us a five-star review, we'll read it on here and we'll give you a shout-out. So, like we said before, uh, we're going to, I hope we record at least one more time before we do this, but March 18th in Philadelphia... Um, we will be hosting a screening of Al White's Starfish. That was my number one movie of the year, and I believe it was Liam's number four. You don't want to miss this movie. Um, he's doing a theatrical tour of the country. You can go to Starfish Mixtape. If you don't live around here, I'm looking at you, Ryan Sawyer, because you live in Virginia, and guess what? I think he's playing in Virginia, so if it's around you, you should go see it. Yep. Uh, so yeah, if you're in Philly or the area, come hang out with us. I'll be doing a Q&A afterwards. Al is a fucking delight to talk to. Um, when we saw it in Brooklyn Horror Festival, Brooklyn Horror Film Festival, the uh, Q&A was great, except for the very last question. So yeah, come out to that, hang out with us, shoot the shit, maybe buy some stuff, say what's up, I don't know. So uh, until next time, Toby Hooper didn't direct Poltergeist. Stop it. <laughs> he did. <laughs>